In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns in Judah, he asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they appointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh Gilead um, who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he, came, when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah and David's men, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat, down, sat on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that was the battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai and Asahel. Now Asahel was a fleet-footed was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued them. Abner looked behind him and asked, "Is that you, Asahel?" "It is," he answered. Then Abner said to him, "Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons." But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amar near Gia, 
on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They forced themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. Thanks, Ellie. Well done. Did a, did a great job reading out those names. Please uh, keep that passage open, everyone. Good evening. It's good to be with you. Just going to perform some renovations here. Bear with me. I've got the power here, have I? Oh, yep, look at that. There we go. Let's, uh, let's pray as we uh, come to this part of God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you give us insight and understanding, that we would uh, know you better, that we would trust your king, that we would live in response to him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Politics. What do you make of politics? You might have heard people say things like, I just can't stand the politics of the place. It's just so much politics going on. I hate politics. Uh, politics can be quite a negative thing, quite a, a negative word. Here's one uh, dictionary that defines politics as in this way. Can you see that? The, uh, it's pretty small, isn't it? The use of underhanded and unscrupulous methods in obtaining power or advancement within an organisation. That's a pretty negative picture of politics, isn't it? And I guess you could, you could see uh, examples of this type of politics in, uh, you know, on a wide scale in governments, or maybe you see it in, on a smaller scale in an organisation or a workplace, people manoeuvring things to get their own way, maybe even at school, uh, community groups, people sort of putting themselves forward, advancing their own cause or interest. Politics can be a fairly negative thing, but... Surely politics in its purest form is, is, it need not be a negative thing. I mean, if politics is just a process of, of forming and enacting policies and, and actions in, you know, in organising things, just kind of getting things done and done properly, well, surely that can be a good thing if it's done in a good way. I mean, politics itself is hardly a bad thing. I mean, we need good order. We need things to to happen properly and to be done well. and In fact, the Bible tells us that God appoints people to positions of authority for the good of society. So the problem is not politics as such, but the people involved in the politics. When you put power in the hands of sinful people, sinful people like us, well, things are never completely wise and never completely good. And so... In that situation, political machinations can abound. 
whether it's on a societal scale or whether it's just in our own little corner of the world at work or at school or in our wider family or wherever it is, things can descend to kind of a grubby power struggle for personal significance or vindication. The problem is not politics per se, but people. The Bible tells us that sinners like us, well, the problem is we're never good enough. We're never strong enough. We're never wise enough to to create, to build a just, peaceful, prosperous society. No, actually our only hope, according to the Bible, is not in human politics, but in the kingdom of God. In the promised reality that God will send his king who will rule perfectly with righteousness, with faithfulness, will bring peace, will bring blessing. And the Bible, of course, teaches us that, well, that king has already come and he's begun to reign. The Lord Jesus is calling people into his kingdom as they turn their lives around and put their trust in him and follow him. And human politics... Our own efforts to manipulate things for our own cause, for our own advancement, it won't ultimately succeed. It won't bring in the kingdom of God because only God's king can do that. And this is the lesson that we see play out in these early chapters in 2 Samuel. And I'm kind of giving you the point up front, but we'll see this play out throughout this chapter that where we've got the, the kingdom of God's appointed king, David, is beginning to reign. And we, and we see various men through their own efforts, their own political manoeuvring, attempting to influence things, maybe to, to hasten the king kingdom or to oppose it, to turn it to their own advantage. And as we see this, these lessons, I think there's a, a valuable challenge and encouragement for us in our own political efforts, if, you can put, if I can put it that way, as we live in this world in response to God's coming king. So look with me at, uh, at 2 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, the central figure throughout 2 Samuel is David. I probably should say the central figure is God, actually. But the, humanly speaking, the central figure is David. And, uh, and as you're reading this, you might be thinking, well, gee, you know, why do we need to learn all this stuff about David? I mean, it's, it's, it's happened a long time ago. John, why are we learning all this stuff about David? Well, David is a central figure in 2 Samuel, but actually he's a central figure in the storyline of the Bible. And he's so important, he's so significant, that the opening verse of the New Testament grounds Jesus' identity in the fact that he is the son of David. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus is descended from David, and that's more than just his kind of human ancestry. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. That is, David was a, he was a model, a, a type, a, a shadow of the king that Jesus would perfectly fulfill. And so as we get to know David, as we see what he was like and what this, this model, this shadow, this type of king is, that shapes our understanding of who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. So let's dive into this. Uh, 2 Samuel 2, we see, you can see an, an, uh, an outline on your handout. We see firstly how the new King David began his reign. Now just to, to recap what we've seen so far, King Saul has died. Uh, he was defeated by the Philistines in battle and David was grieved when he heard this news. Even though Saul had set himself up as a, as a as an enemy of David, well, more to the point, as David was an enemy of Saul, 
And uh, Saul had repeatedly tried to kill David. And even though David would stand to gain from Saul's death, because this would mean that he would then become king, despite that, David continued to regard Saul as the Lord's anointed. And so David honoured Saul in his life and he mourned him in his death. But then in chapter 2, we see how David, as the new king, began his reign. Have a look at the first thing that he did. Verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. Notice, David, what is the first thing he did? Inquired of the Lord. He sought out and listened to the word of God. That had been the very point of Saul's failure. Years earlier, Samuel had told Saul that that above all else, he must listen to the words of the Lord. And Saul had failed to do that. And and that was ultimately the the failure of his kingship. That was the reason that he would die at the hands of the Philistines was because he did not listen to the voice of the Lord. But David's reign here begins in a stark contrast to Saul's disobedience. Here's David in humble obedience to God. He went up to Hebron. He ascended. And I think this is not just physically from Ziklag to the, the higher altitude of Hebron, but he metaphorically ascended to his throne. And here he is foreshadowing God's ultimate king, Jesus, who many years later was highly exalted through a path of humble obedience. God's king did not grasp power out of selfish ambition. The path to kingship was obedience to God. Now David went up and he went with, notice verse 2, his two wives which you might think is exactly one too many, uh, and you'd be correct. Um, Just a side note here, uh, polygamy was not forbidden in the Old Testament, uh, but the problems with it are often talked about and are often seen and demonstrated. Uh, God established his pattern for marriage and creation in the the Genesis accounts between one man and one woman for life. Jesus upheld that that pattern that's established in creation. David's polygamy here... uh, we will see in the weeks ahead, this was central to his downfall, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So David, along with his two wives and the men who were with him, went up to Hebron and they settled there and in the surrounding towns, we read in verse 3. There would have likely been a few thousand people there with him. In verse 4 we read, Then the men of Judah came to Hebron and there they anointed David king over the tribe of of Judah. David is king at last. After many, many years of waiting, he has become king at last. But notice he's anointed king over the tribe of Judah. Judah was the, uh, the southernmost tribe of the nation of Israel. Here's a map that shows Judah was the, uh, the, the, the southern part of the nation uh, with the other tribes to the north. And David is anointed king here over Judah, and it kind of begs the question, well, what about the rest of Israel? Will they also anoint him king over them? Before we get to that question, though, notice um, how this new king will treat his enemies. Second half of verse 4, when David was told that it was the men from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, 
He sent messengers to, to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by bearing him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Uh, the end of 1 Samuel, uh, we read the, the account of Saul's death. And we read that how the men of Jabesh-Gilead had risked their lives by, by invading Philistine enemy territory in order to, to retrieve Saul's body who had been hung up on a wall. They, they honoured Saul's body, they buried him. Uh, now Jabesh had, was the same town that years prior to that Saul had uh, dramatically saved from Nabesh the Ammonite. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 11. So the men of Jabesh clearly uh, were loyal to Saul, such that they would risk their lives to, to honour him in his death. Uh, they showed themselves to be Saul's friends. And we might think, well, given Saul's enmity towards David, I mean, that might turn David against them. But no, David honours them. David prays for God's blessing to be shown to them, God's love and kindness. And he shows this, this same kindness to them. So this new king shows kindness to those who would regard themselves as his enemies. Though they were his enemies, he spoke to them of God's love. Again, you hear the echoes of King Jesus. He showed God's ultimate love and kindness and faithfulness to those who were his enemies, to us. Well, David's now king over Judah. Return to that question, what about the rest of Israel? Well, in verse 8, we read of a rival kingdom being established and the new king was opposed. Verse 8, meanwhile, or some translations, you might have an ESV, it says, but, that is, unlike the, the men of Judah, but Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asherai, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Now, I don't want to lose you in a sea of strange names here, which Ellie read uh, very well. Uh, let me try and un unpack this. Enter stage right, Abner. There he is. Now, Abner was the cousin of Saul. That is, his father. There we go. Ner. Good name, Ner and Abner. Um, his father, Ner, was the brother of Kish, who was Saul's father. That's a crown over um, Saul's head, in case you're wondering. So these guys were, um, were cousins, and Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Now, Abner and David would have known each other, because I mean, Abner was the commander of Saul's army. In fact, Abner was there with Saul on the day that, uh, that David uh, defeated Goliath. Abner was there with Saul the night that, that David snuck into to his camp and and Abner failed to, to, to defend his king. Uh, so Abner was clearly affected by Saul's enmity towards David. When Saul died, Abner didn't rush to change his allegiance to David. Instead, he installed one of his sons, Ishbosheth, to become king. He was something of a, 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 a puppet king in place of his father. And notice he made him king over all these, these different areas that are listed here, including, lastly, all Israel. 
which I think at this stage is talking about the whole thing, the whole nation, including Judah. That is, Abner does not acknowledge David as king. He is opposing him. It's interesting also the place that Abner brings Ishbosheth to make him king is a place called Mahanaim, which means two camps. Somewhat symbolic that Abner is dividing Israel into two camps, those of Judah who acknowledge David as king and those of the north of Judah who don't. I think it's a sobering reminder that there will always be those who oppose God's king. And the chapters that follow show how that works out with these tensions and rivalry between these two camps or these two sides. And it begins from verse 12 with this conflict between the two sides in the kingdom, the conflict between Abner's men and David's men. Now, as Ellie was reading this, you might have been thinking, what on earth is going on here? Uh, And what does this have to teach us? I know it's uh, one of my growth groups this week. That was kind of the dominant theme as we read through this chapter. What on earth is going on here? What does this have to teach us? Let's look at this conflict because I think there's some really important and valuable lessons to learn here. Uh, There's three scenes to it, which you'll you'll see there on the outline. And it's important to notice that neither David nor Ishbosheth were involved in this conflict. This was an attempt by their followers, led by their strong men to resolve things by talk and by action. This was politics, you could say, and it failed. The politicians were not wise enough, not good enough, not strong enough to solve the problems facing them. The the limitations of human politics were on display. It begins with two sides coming together in Gibeon, verse 12. It says, Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So enter stage left, Joab. Now, Joab was, uh, Joab's mother, Zeruiah, was David's sister. We can read about that in uh, 1 Chronicles 2.16. Joab was uh, Abner's equivalent. He was, he was the commander of David's army, just as Abner was the commander of Saul, or now Ishbosheth's army. And so we have two rival parties coming together at Gibeon. And at least initially, the scene is calm. Verse 13 continues... One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other. They're seated around a pool. Perhaps this was a pre-planned meeting to discuss a a diplomatic solution to the growing division in in Israel. What happens next is Abner suggests some hand-to-hand competition Literally, he says, let the young men arise and compete before us. Now, the word compete has the sort of sense of entertainment. You might know the story of Samson, you know, when the the Philistines captured Samson and they they said, let's bring out Samson to entertain us. It's the same word used here for compete. So Abner's uh, suggesting that uh, let's have some, some entertainment. Let's have a competition. Joab agrees to this competition. Maybe the intent was a wrestling match of some sort. Maybe think of it like an ancient equivalent of state of origin, you know, north versus south. And so verse 15 we read, so they stood up and were 
counted off 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Kind of like the, the, the players entering onto the, onto the field, except there'd be 13 if it was a state of origin. But that may, that an entertaining context may, uh, contest may have been the intent. But perhaps like many state of origin matches, tensions were high and things soon exploded and got way out of hand. The summary is provided there in verse 16. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side and they fell down together. Maybe like with state of origin Biff where it only takes one person to sort of raise a fist and suddenly 26 people are going at it. Likewise, it probably only took one person to reach for the concealed dagger and 24 people lay dead with a dagger in their side. And so verse 16 finishes, so that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hezerim, which a footnote in your Bible will tell you means field of daggers. Well, Abner and Job's Job's uh, first attempt at a way forward was a dismal failure. Any hope of a, a peaceful resolution was destroyed and what ensued was a terrible battle. The rest of the day, verse 17, provides the summary. The battle that day was very fierce and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. Notice how it's worded there that, that this is Abner against David. Abner's defiance against the kingship of David, that's the root cause of this conflict. Uh, the writer gives us the summary, and then we get the detail. We're, we're told of the three sons of Zeruiah. These are the three nephews of David, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And these men were loyal supporters of the king. They were men of action. Uh, the middle brother, Abishai, was, uh, he was the one who went with David. He snuck into the, the, the camp, Saul's camp at night time and, and wanted to pin Saul to the ground with his, his own sword. He was a man of action. But this time it's his brother Asahel, the fleet-footed Asahel who takes action. Uh, verse 18 says, Now Asahel, uh, Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Asahel single-mindedly focused on taking out the top dog, Abner. Never mind meetings of diplomacy now, that's gone. Asahel will take matters into his own hands. But this is a bit of an unfair match, and Abner knows it. Uh, Asahel may be fleet-footed, but he's no match for the experienced, hardened military commander. And Abner tries to, to deter him. So he's turn aside to someone else. You know, fight someone who's a better match for you. He wants to de-escalate things. Verse 22, again, Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look at your brother Joab in the face? But in the end, it's um, Asahel's own speed that's his downfall as he impaled himself on Abner's spear. I, I take it he's thrust his spear backwards as he's being chased and Asahel has impaled himself on Abner's spear with the gruesome detail of the spear, the butt of the spear going out through his back. And there lay the dead nephew of King David for all to see. The conflict has escalated to another level. Asahel's brothers, Joab and Abishai, 
They take action now. They pursue Abner as he retreats, seeking revenge for their brother's death. And it says they pursue him throughout the day. Verse 24 says, As the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Two camps on two hills. Abner, now with the men of Benjamin, rallied behind him on one hill. Joab and Abishai on the other. And Abner, still trying to de-escalate things, calls for a truce. Verse 26, Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Notice he refers to them as fellow Israelites or, or literally brothers. They're pursuing their own brothers. Now, maybe Joab was persuaded by Abner's speech, his call for a truce, or maybe he just didn't like his chances against Abner now with the men of the Benja, um, Benjamin who had rallied behind him. But either way, Joab eventually calls off his men and they go their separate ways. The chapter finishes with Asahel being buried. Notice where he's buried, verse 32, in his father's tomb at Bethlehem, David's hometown. The place where years earlier David had been, been anointed by Samuel and told that one day he would be king. Maybe this account finishes with this little detail about Bethlehem as a reminder of what was at the heart of this conflict, namely the ascension of God's chosen king. And the thing that matters most is not understanding the, the plans, the strategies of Abner and Joab. I mean, we might look at, at this bloody day of battle and wonder well, who was right, who was wrong. The writer but the Bible here seems content not to comment on who was right and who was wrong. What, what's clear is that the situation was rather hopeless. And Abner, Joab, their, their strategies didn't work. The best men of action from both sides, they only made things worse. They weren't strong enough. They weren't wise enough. They weren't good enough to solve things. What hope was left? Bethlehem. God's kingdom would come, but it wouldn't come through the failed strategies of men like Abner and Joab in the days of David. God's kingdom would ultimately come about a thousand years later, again featuring Bethlehem, when a son of David was born there, born to be the true king, the one whom David would only faintly foreshadow. And through that king, this King Jesus, the son of David, God again worked in strange ways through his death, humble obedience to the point of death. Through his resurrection from the dead, he won victory over evil. And God continues to work in strange ways through the preaching of the foolish message of the cross. God is growing his kingdom, calling people to, to turn their lives around and to put their trust in him as king. And so by way of implication for us, as we live in this world, as we live with the challenges of different situations that we find ourselves in, 
The wise response is not to, to strive and to strategize, to manipulate things to our own cause, to our own advancement, to, to play politics, so to speak. Because just like Abner and Joab, we are not wise enough, we are not strong enough, we are not good enough to make any real progress that ultimately matters. The wise response is simply to pray, your kingdom come. It's to realize that what matters most is that Jesus is God's appointed king and he will work to bring in his kingdom. Our efforts often achieve far less than we hope for. Often what we do achieve is, is weak and fragile. It doesn't last. But praise God, he's the one who's bringing in his kingdom. And when he establishes his kingdom, well, that's when we will finally know the hope and the peace that we long for. So rather than looking to our own human strategies, our own plans, our own efforts, our own politics, instead, let's look to Bethlehem and let's pray authentically, your kingdom come. Why don't we do that now? Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we confess that so often we do strive and strategize and seek to bring about change for ourselves, for our cause, for our advancement. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. And Father, we thank you that you have installed your King, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his kindness, for his faithfulness, that when we were your enemies... You have shown us in Jesus kindness. You have shown us in Jesus faithfulness. Father, help us not to look to ourselves, to our own efforts, our own strength and wisdom, but, but to look to you, to look to Bethlehem where you gave us the perfect king. Father, thank you that you are bringing your kingdom, that you're bringing your kingdom through your king. We pray that more and more people would would hear and respond to your call, would put their trust in Jesus, would turn their lives around and trust him. Father, we pray in humility and dependence, may your kingdom come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.